before we get started, you know, again, we don't have any disclosures that we'll put here in the recording. Um, and then I'll just go back to um, starting with our discussion. Um, ask us anything <laughs> about recovery and employment. Let's see what happens. Maybe we could uh, start with something that people learned about that they didn't know about through this experience. Yeah, what was something that maybe came as a surprise to you about employment and recovery? Well, I'll tell you something, because, you know, why not? I'll break the silence. And I was recommending for people for a long time, and I might have said it in this venue. Um, if you get Netflix, there's a documentary, and it's called Crip Camp. And the documentary is about primarily people with physical disabilities. Um, but it's got really old footage of when there were these camps, literally, that people with disabilities or who were called handicapped went to. And someone took a lot of home movies of these individuals talking about their experience. And then they go all the way through their lifespan for a couple of these characters and not characters, but these they're people. Um, several of them show you what they had to do as people with disabilities to work. And it's extremely compelling to see um, this one person who uses a wheelchair shows you what he had to do to be a projectionist, which is actually kind of a perfect job for him. And he describes why it's a perfect job for him. But he literally has to get out of his wheelchair at the base of these rickety stairs and lift himself up like five stairs to get into where he would do the projection. And then he talks about why things like the ADA or the Rehabilitation Act and these more kind of social things um, were the only things that allowed him to actually have a really more present space in employment. And without them, and without the supports of them, he would probably still be lifting himself up these stairs um, to get into a projection booth versus, you know, having people do that. What surprised me about it is, um, you know, you get that natural memory of where your life started. I'm not sure why I became socially conscious about disability. But 1972, for example, um, I had no idea that many people did not support or believe in the Rehab Act to begin with. That was a surprise to me, that there would be people who would not support that, who would not think that was a good idea, that just people with disabilities right to be in education and they had a right to be at work and so I think about that now like what do people think about the space for disabilities and particularly mental health issues um in the workforce because right now I think you know everybody's experiencing a lot of emotional or mood stuff in the workplace um whether or not they've ever had a formal disability so that's a surprise I had. I don't know if any of the rest of you have seen the documentary. I haven't, but it sounds great. It's very telling. The other thing is listening to them sit around in groups of their peers with disabilities. And, you know, one might have MS and another one might have some other type of, of disability. Talking about how their parents treat them as adults talking about their sexuality, talking about their friendships as people with disabilities. And most of the things they talk about are still very buoyant issues among people in recovery today, feeling their own self-determination, feeling like they make choices about what they do, their relationships. So 
was an interesting layer of, of employment kind of all as an undercurrent in there because when they talk about that um it's very compelling to see what people went through to be able to be in the workforce we had a couple of weeks ago someone mentioned someone that they had helped get a job and they were having problems on the job and all of those issues and i'll share with you I, this morning i got an email about a person who we had helped get a job i got an email from his supervisor um, that yesterday and he's a he is a man with both a mental health issue and a traumatic brain injury um, and his physical disfigurement from the traumatic brain injury um, is very noticeable and and um, he, there's been a history of him he's been receiving services on and off from us for many years a history of him having his presence having a negative impact on young women who feel frightened by him. So yesterday there was an incident on the job where he works and you know, kind of a back room kind of operation where he made some comments to a young woman um, that she found offensive and felt unsettled by, um, really upset about it, can't come into work today because of it. And he, in the conversation to her, commented that he's had problems with this before. And part of his disability is he has no filter. And that's from the traumatic brain injury. And where we've had, he's lost employment, but now he's working for someone who takes federal funds and you cannot fire someone for a disability related behavior when you take are an agency or a place that takes federal funds. So what do we do about this? What would people say he would need at work? What does he need at work? So on target about um, all of this, right? It's as if, if you're in the role of, of, of sort of fronting a program to help people get work, Right, you're trying to sell that this is an untapped workforce um, and that they are people with disabilities and they don't appear to have any physical disabilities and then people go right down that rabbit hole as you talked about and begin to develop or the stereotypes that they have become pretty active and that that is limiting for the, the person. Um, and it does make um, helping people get choose, well, get and keep work really, really difficult really difficult, you know, and in the, in the case of my guy, you know, he presents as having a, you know, you can kind of tell he has had a traumatic brain injury, um, but, you know, he, he does need accommodations. I um, mean, he does have some, but I think, you know, we're, he actually probably needs almost like a, a daily job coach of some sort that checks in with him um, and who reminds him because he is aware that he shouldn't be saying and doing certain things, but it doesn't always, you know, that, that awareness and the behavior don't always connect in the moment, particularly when he's with women. Um, and so I think, you know, he needs, he needs more active co job coaching on the job coaching and whether or not people you know, this place that he works at is willing to provide that or can provide that is something we're gonna to have to explore. Um, but that I think is what he needs. Um, and for him, work has been so meaningful. 
Like he it has done such a number for um, his self-esteem and his sense of agency in the world. I have a job, you know, and I, he gets up and he gets on the train every day and um, he, he uses a cane and he goes to work and, you know, he lives in supported housing and he comes back and he talks about his job. So it's given him a sense of purpose in his life that's really important, but he keeps running into these keeping barriers around that are related to his disability, but they do get in the way of, of uh, a respectful work culture for everyone, right? And that's, and then they can play into, as you're talking about, employers, you know, concerns and, and uh, maybe prejudicial thinking before the person even gets there. But um, I mean, there, you, we, have the, we have a range of people that we're trying to help go back to work. Some you would never know they live with a disability and others you do know, you know, um, it's apparent. So thank you for that, that was great. Something I was thinking about when someone put in the chat also put in there that a work coach, actually, Dory, as you noted, but, yeah. um, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about other disability groups and I'm thinking about this particular in, individual who has a traumatic brain injury. And, and it's like you said, it's like by the time something's been said, then they're like realizing if they do this, you know, so I'm thinking what would our colleagues in the Tourette's community have to say to us about accommodations for individuals with that type of disorder? Because sometimes they have the tendency to blurt things or say things that might be socially inappropriate, but it comes back to, you know, is it um, more acceptable when you hear someone say, I have Tourette syndrome and they say, oh, obviously some of these things you might say are part of that disability versus what we say about a person with a mental illness, or in this case, what we even say about a person with a brain injury, you know? And so I think that, you know, our approach to people with disabilities and how we evaluate it and are there, you know, degrees of stigma or acceptance is a really important thing in the workplace, because I do think that there are, there's some nuance to that. I mean, I, I think I mentioned this in the very first session, but um, I hear it a lot on, in, on university campuses with students who have serious mental illnesses who are struggling to stay there and schools saying, oh, the, it, the stigma and prejudice just, and discrimination has gotten so much better around mental health. And I actually don't agree with that. Um, it's just my personal opinion that I, I think we've, um, it's kind of like when recovery first came out and everyone started using the language of recovery, but they didn't change the way they behaved, right? So, you know, I used to, I had a project once um, where I was visiting state hospitals in the state of New York, and they were these really horrific environments, you know, they were dirty, they didn't smell well, that people were that everyone was locked up and, and, but they had all the language of recovery on the walls. You know, we value people here. And, but the way they were practicing and trying to help people hadn't changed. And I feel the same thing has happened with the language around stigma is that people are saying, oh, it's going away. And people talk about mental illness, but that no one's behaviors have really changed. Um, not in a large scale way. Um, you know, I think within our own community, people on this, on this um, Zoom 
course and certainly in our communities, Lisa, that you know we are such advocates for equity um, and diversity and inclusion of people with serious mental illnesses. And um, so yes, in our circles, perhaps our behaviors are changing, but I think in the greater social context, I think it's kind of gone undercover a little bit, you know, people find a way to push back on, on hiring and keeping people with psychiatric illnesses. So the other thing we have about versus ask us anything about recovery would be to tell us what you think off the record, no obligation, <laughs> you think are the kinds of things that could change in approaching services and employment for people. Um, you know, one that I can throw out is <laughs> you that a community mental health agency I work with called Thresholds really values is, you know, they are all about social determinants, diversity, equity, and inclusion, all these things that we want to blend into evidence-based practice, particularly around work. And what they have found and are landing on is a commitment to what they're calling housing first. Now, there's have been some programs called that, but they're really talking about the fact that how hard it is for an individual to really focus on recovery, promote their health, and frankly work if their housing is really unstable. And I know some of you work with people who have really unstable housing and things like that. So I think for me, housing would be one thing that, you know, without a house, it's really hard to work. So I would change housing. A couple chats, uh, the Job Accommodation Network, yep. uh, Workplace Accommodations for Disability Issues. They have examples on their website. Yep, that's a great resource. I think the Job Accommodation Network is in a couple of the slide decks. And so if you take those back and you share them either with your colleagues or you have them to download, there's that's in there and there's a couple other uh, sister sites to that. So excellent. So here's a question I have for you um, in your neck of the woods. How is work in your populations for individuals who have formerly been involved with, you know, jail or other types of justice settings. I don't like to say criminal justice settings, it's just my convention, but you know, here in Illinois, we had a, uh, a push for what was called drop the box, which was that little box you had to check on an employment application. And once they dropped that box, boy, did that help a lot of people with mental illness who might've been detained or had some history. So is that something that you see as a barrier or something that your area has worked on to really remove from people? So that's a really interesting note there that, you know, in the past, people with, you know, certainly drug offenses and things like that have had some issues. Um, you know, I think it shifted. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if people who are in recovery from opiates, that's like an issue we're having here. Like our west side of Chicago, the drug courts, as Dory, you're kind of alluding and others have alluded, they've become... Someone said to me, they're really opiate courts at this point for the most part. And all of the deflection and diversion from the Chicago Police Department and other kind of on the ground people is almost all predominantly opiates at this point. Um, I don't know if legal cannabis in Illinois changed that, but um, that's the real issue. And someone was talking to me about how do you, you know, working with people in opiate recovery in the workforce because employers are, you know, kind of concerned about people um, and their addiction because it looks a lot different 
I guess, than what they might consider for some people. Oh, great. Thank you. Proposition 47. There's a bunch more um, things in the chat. Proposition 47 for fair hiring, the California Fair Chance Act. And then Dory put some stuff in about the cannabis and expungement, expungement, excuse me. A kind um, of how to do it. Yeah, how to do it in California. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so interesting how, you know, as a society, these, you know, we're evolving, right, around certain substances, you know, people have strong feelings about that, but how, uh, um, I just think about, I, I know of a family that has a lot of mental illness in the adults and the young adults that they've raised and um, trying to get involved in community events. And the um, both of the parents are veterans. Both of them have a significant history of behavioral health issues. Um, and they were not, weren't allowed to participate in some of their children's educational activities because of um, their records from like 30 years ago you know, during 40 years ago, even longer, longer, 40, 50 years ago, um, older parents um, and were, you know, people did a check and said, no, you can't participate. Um, so there's no, there isn't a whole lot of um, room for recovery in, in these sorts of uh, activities that happen. I think that's where the advocacy has to come in. Um, you know, some people do make significant progress in their well-being and old records hold them back from, you know, being full citizens in their communities. You know, when we started our discussion a few weeks ago, we talked a little bit about what work means in the country, what work means to all of us. Work is one of the most important, in my opinion, social determinants of health, because it's personally, I think it's poverty, you know, and then they say employment status. I'm like, I'm not sure how those are separate, but I guess they could be, you know, you could be working, but you're still living in poverty. And yes, yeah. so I think that's the important thing to consider is that many, many of the individuals that we have in these service programs are already living in poverty and they are living with the minimal. And in your case, I'm thinking some, you know, Candida, your, your client who's a refugee is even maybe below the minimal thing that an American in public health would receive. So when you think about what the minimum is, you know, work is even more important because without the added resources, you can't eat better. You can't be in a better housing situation. You can't afford medications. You know, I don't know about $1,600 or whatever it was, but, you know, that's another issue that when, you know, people are excluded at the top of the hour because they are, I had a criminal justice history. I smoked cannabis 35 years ago. I did whatever you know, I have six parking tickets that now there's a warrant, I can't get an ID, and I can't go pay the tickets, so I can't get an ID, so I can't get a job. Yeah. You know, I don't want to say parking tickets are a victimless crime, but, you know, that's a barrier to a person. And so I just, you know, and then if you have a disability, I think on top of it, whether it's behavioral health, physical, whatever, you know, we've already told people from the beginning, we want you to recover, but we're not going to let you have all the opportunities or all the open opportunities yeah. to do that. It, and it just seems like when you take the identity of work particularly away from people, it sort of limits our agency. And I think things start to erode from there when we don't have purpose, we don't have a thing 
whether we stress about our jobs or not, we get up to do them. We meet people at our jobs. We have money from our jobs. And so I just think work brings a value to everything that we do um, that we exclude people from on these counts and that we should think about that. The whole issue of eyeglasses makes my head explode, right? Is that people need, a lot of us need glasses to see and Medicaid doesn't cover eyewear. And how are you supposed to work if you can't see? And as you all know, many of you who wear glasses, they are friggin' expensive. And so that to me is an essential piece of clothing, right? For many yeah. human beings. And this is, these are the places that I run into a wall where I just want to, you know, bang on the wall and say, this is nutty. It's exactly to your point. It's like, we're mandating, oh, you have 90 days to recover, but we're not going to, you know, we're not going to, you know, pay for any of the things that you actually need to, um, to, to function at an extremely basic level, you know, go out and find it on your own. And, and I think COVID really was, that was another place where that, you know, okay, we're all having to be on Zoom, but how many, most of the people that I serve did not have internet or a computer. And so how are we supposed to continue to even interact with them? You know, well, and, you know things like that make the lack of resources that are fundamental for basic living in our country right now are not seen as fundamental by the people that pay for them. Well, and to add to that, I think about the computers, we're learning this, the agency I work in, you know, the staff didn't have Zoom. The staff didn't know how to use Zoom. Exactly. The members don't have an IT guy that they're they call them members as their clients. Their clients don't have an IT guy. They're their own IT guys. So they're like, well, I need you to get Zoom and have a thing, and you know, clinicians, sometimes cannot help an individual do that because the only thing they can do is what they can get paid for. You know, we are doing a project where we've added a, a service provider called a peer health navigator with some investigators here at Illinois. And the peer health navigators can do things that the other clinicians can't do because they can't be billed for and the peers don't have to bill for them. One of the things that recently came up was that a woman with diabetes needed some special shoes, I guess, that you can get if you're living with circulation problems. Yeah, yeah. The shoes are free to you once a year because you have Medicaid, I guess is what she has. The only barrier to her, and if she got the shoes, she could actually get a job because then she could take the train and stand and do all these different things. The only barrier was her getting to the place to actually get fitted for the shoes. And once we inserted this person who could actually do that, they took her, she got the shoes, and now she's in the workforce. And so again, this very small thing that could be a barrier to a person that actually can make all the difference in trying to unpack how we do it, who can do it. Um, and so these little things about access, I think, and you know, certainly I think if you asked me what would be my second thing besides housing, I always say money, but you know, um resources for people can be so small a pair of shoes you know um eyeglasses for somebody um we recently had another person living with diabetes of course they had not had an eye exam in three years yeah and, and that's not the standard of care for a person with diabetes at all and they need glasses and now that they have glasses they can see their phone they can read their prescriptions. They can like all the little things, just the eyeglasses did yep. and getting them fitted at their age. Yeah. 
And I want to applaud the, the Wi-Fi IT, any of you clinicians helping people with IT and broadband and computers, because how many of you recently have applied for a job on paper? Yeah, try applying for a job, right? Helping people apply for jobs. It's all online and some of them are timed. And it's and then I have a, a person that I'm actually coaching right now where he the interview is staring at a screen. There's no human. It's a recorded series of questions. And it's not a good fit, a match for who he is with his disability. So, and he really wants to work for this particular group. Uh, it's near his home, he can get there. They have a wide range of jobs, but everything is this internet-based, non-human process. Um, it's really, it's tough. These are tough, these are tough barriers that um, are becoming part of our society. And some of these job places, you have to set up an account with them. And then you set up an account with somebody else. You didn't get the job. You're like, do I still need this account there? But I do think, you know, your comments about technology, all of you are really important because, you know, whether the person has access or use, um, think about, again, people who, because they are homeless or because they're in unstable housing or because they have a mental health history or they're frankly living in poverty, they do not have access regularly to the tools that most of us use every day for communication, to make appointments, to set up a job interview, to look at a health appointment. Um, they're my chart, you know, if you're getting your test results back or you're confirming things, all of it has shifted to some form of electronica, as we like to say. And so I think that's another thing to consider um, as something we have to say is access for people you know, who are homeless or poor or don't have resources or things we have to consider. Without it, they aren't going to be able to participate so much. So we're coming up on the top of the time for our course. And I, you know, I want to speak never for my friend, Dr. Hutchinson, but I would like to say thank you for everybody who's been in the sessions your feedback, your attention to the information, your discussion points with us. It's been great to learn from you. And I really just want to say how grateful and appreciative I am for you. And, and I want to just say thank you for the work that you do. Um, I think we know that you're doing the kind of work that um, is often not uh, responded to with gratitude. And, and we know you are on the front lines doing that kind of work really helping people. So thank you for that as well. And taking care of one another as service providers and being, you know, supportive of one another. Um, that's something I notice in our workforce is some of them have decided to go into other lines and there's fewer of you and it just puts a lot more on the plates of those of you who are still here with us. And so I just want to thank you for your tenacity because it's not unnoticed, I think, in a lot of communities. It's been a real pleasure to spend all this time with you guys, so thank you.